Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There are a lot of books and conferences, retreats and revivals that through the years have been dedicated to, if you will, stirring us or rekindling our spiritual life, our spiritual fire. Many of them have that terminology in them in one way or another, renewing your love, renewing your devotion, or maybe more um, recently on a negative side, avoiding burnout or uh, trying uh, to deal with apathy or whatever it might be. And just the sheer volume of those things through the years kind of speaks to the constant need that we face as Christians to, uh, or the sense that we feel to stir up our zeal, to stir up our fervor for the love of Christ and for the proclamation of the gospel. It always sort of churns within us this idea that maybe we ought to be doing more, we ought to be serving in greater ways, we ought to be more faithful in this and more faithful in that. And yet when you look into all of these books, read through all of their uh, chapters and uh, insights or whatever it might be, most of them maybe, fail, I believe, because they miss one central truth that is vital in that endeavor. And it's a central truth that is prominent throughout the entire New Testament. Over and over and over again, this truth is linked to your renewed vitality in Christ. It is continually presented as that which undergirds your love for Christ and stirs you in your aspiration, stirs you in your faithfulness. It is absolutely essential if you, if you have any intent of maintaining consistency in your spiritual life. And it is, it is this, it's not uh, simply in one or two pages, but it is this constant call for you and I to set our eyes on the return of Christ. It's what you see throughout the scripture. Whether you're in the New Testament, the Old Testament, this was what characterized those saints who were most faithful For example, Luke chapter 2, we read about a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this was a righteous and devout man looking for the consolation of Israel. This is what characterized his life. Everyone knew this about Simeon. If you were around Simeon, you talked to Simeon, this eventually came up. He was looking for... For that coming day, which was known in his time as the consolation of Israel. We're later told about a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who when she came up to the temple to give thanks, she continued, it says, speaking to all about this Savior that she had heard about and and, uh, met in the temple to all those, she says, who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, near the end, we meet a man named Joseph, a man of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And this is exactly the way that 
every godly saint through the years has lived. They looked with anticipation. They were uh, waiting and, and longing and singing and praying and talking about these things all the time. In fact, this is the posture that we're supposed to have. This is precisely what the gospel is intended to produce in your life. Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel instructs you to do. It instructs you to live this way with this perspective. The Apostle Paul speaks about this this element, if you will, in his life again and again. Philippians chapter 3, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven from whom we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He urges the Corinthians, wait eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. And over and over again, you read about this throughout the pages of Scripture. Those are just a a few of the places where the biblical writers present their own perspective, their own stance, and their own call to us to live in this way. Now, we are to be oriented towards this return of Christ. It isn't to be something that, that occasionally passes your mind. It comes up every so often when you might dip into an eschatological class or something, or, or when you arrive on a Sunday and the preaching theme happens to be on this, or you might have something in the song selection talking about the return of Christ. This is to characterize our lives. And as Titus says, it is the key for us living sensibly, righteously in this present age church that is desperate to find some something to help them maintain their fervency, their fire, if you will, in their walk for Christ, the answer so many times is right in front of them. They're just ignoring it. It is this development of an anxious gaze for the return of our Savior. Well, this is the key truth that we come to today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as Paul is writing to this church. He's writing to them about the second coming of Christ. And he he introduced the subject, you remember, in chapter 4. But he can't leave it without taking the opportunity to remind them of what this gospel, or I should say what this doctrine of the end times is is intended to produce in their lives. This is what he says in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains 
come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are, you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing here's paul talking about eschatology and it's obvious just reading through the passage that this is no abstract or academic discussion for the apostle paul this hits right at home has implications for your life and my life it is a chief motivator it was for the apostle paul who spoke about how he He poured out himself, not looking for rewards in this life, but looking for what the Lord had in store for him in the life to come. How he was building, not with wood, hay, and stubble, but with precious stones because he knew he would appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul was an eschatologically oriented man, and he kept his eyes eagerly uh, focused, eagerly riveted to that day. And now he's telling the Thessalonians that this should characterize their life, your life, my life, this kind of anticipation, this kind of of focus on the imminent appearing of Christ. This is, in fact, what Jesus instructed us to do. If you remember over in Luke chapter 12, Jesus was giving teaching to his disciples. And if you read there in verse 35, Luke 12, beginning in verse 35, this is what uh, Jesus teaches them. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. I mean, right there, that sort of summarizes what so many Christians are are after, right? They want to be ready. They want to be dressed for action. They want to find out a way to to keep their, their attitude always alight in service to the Lord, to keep their lamps lit. And Jesus says, this is what we need to do, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes... In the second watch or in the third, and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now you hear just listening to the words of Christ there, what you hear is a lot of similar themes to what the Apostle Paul is even telling us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And these were themes that were not necessarily 
spelled out, at least in those kind of explicit terms, anywhere in the Old Testament. These aren't, these aren't uh, metaphors he's picking up necessarily from the prophets. This is language that comes directly from Christ himself. And, and Paul, writing the book of Thessalonians in around 50 A.D., was writing, it seems, before any of the Gospels had been written at this point. And so he's probably become aware of this teaching of Christ through the teaching of others. In other words, this would have been a repeated theme, something that was emphasized in the early church through all of the oral teaching that had come down from the time of of Christ's resurrection and the birth of the church. Not only that, but it was something that apparently... Paul had put great emphasis on with the Thessalonian believers. You remember he was with them a very short period of time, just about three months maybe. And in that short period of time, he had taught them these very things. In fact, he tells them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you don't need anyone to teach you these things. You're fully aware of all of this. You've been well taught in this area. Paul had been with them and apparently in this short period of time considered this topic to be central in their Christian life. So different than our times today where people are fearful even of studying eschatology or they study it with some sort of aberrant fascination that has no connection whatsoever to their own life and the way they should live. The Apostle Paul wanted to teach them as among the first things what the return of Christ meant for their life because he knew that if they were going to pursue Christ in a consistent way throughout all their days, they would fail if they failed to keep this perspective. They would stumble. They would be found unprepared and unready at the return of Christ if they didn't keep their lamps properly lit with these truths. So Paul here, taking the occasion, because apparently in chapter 4, as he writes verses 13 through 18, he's answering some, some question that had arisen among them, and, and he was answering really regarding those who had died, whether or not they would be raised at the return of Christ. But he takes that occasion of their question to then give them another exhortation when it comes to eschatology but not focusing now on those who are already passed on he turns his attention to those of us who are still alive still waiting the return of Christ and he teaches us what our perspective needs to be and he does it by way of contrast a contrast here between those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness, those who are prepared and those who are unprepared, or we might say those who are believers and those who are not believers. And in this contrast, he intends to highlight in our minds the the way our life should be characterized as those who understand the return of Christ. This is what uh, what ought to characterize you and I. Four characteristics, really, that he outlines here. Four traits for uh, characteristics of those who live in the light of Christ's appearing. Four characteristics of those who live in the light of His appearing. 
What are they? Well, first of all, in the first two verses, he points out that those who live in the light of Christ appearing are those who are aware of the suddenness of that appearing, the imminence of it, we might say. They are aware of that. Paul says, you don't need anyone to write this to you. You're fully aware of it. Like a thief in the night, it will come, totally unexpected. People may be caught by surprise, but you won't be caught by surprise because you've been taught and you understand this. You understand what Paul initially calls in verse 1, the times and the seasons. It's kind of a technical a term that's used a couple places in Scripture, and you'll notice it's in the plural, referring to not just one event, but referring to all of the events, all of the various things which make up the end times. And, and this is a phrase that Paul is using in reference to all of those things. This is what Jesus had even used in Acts 1-7 whenever uh, Israel was, uh, whenever the, the uh, apostles were asking him about the restoration of Israel. And he says, it's not for you to understand in this way the timing of these times and seasons. But, but here Paul says that they did understand what they needed to understand. When it comes to these things. They understand accurately. They understand completely. They, they had apparently been uh, taught by the Apostle Paul. About all of the essential elements of the end times. The rapture of the church. The tribulation that's to come on the whole world. The second coming of Christ. The judgment of the unrighteous. The thousand year millennial kingdom. The war of Armageddon. Which comes at the end of all that time. And Paul says, there's no need for me to write about any of that stuff to you. You're, you're fully aware. You, he uses the word for precision. Acrobos is the word. It implies careful attention, strict conformity to a standard, or even, uh, even a, a level of precision after a thorough investigation. And, and all of this kind of lends itself to this whole idea of carefulness, of, of looking at the details in every minute way. And this is how Paul describes their knowledge. They had been taught these things with precision. The opposite of generality. The opposite of just sort of a high altitude look. Paul had taught them with all of the accuracy that he could. Now Paul taught them, as I said, as this new church he was um, their only real outside teacher up to this point. He had just left them a few months before this. They really had not been visited by anyone else. They had no other uh, uh, significant teachers that came through. He was the one who walked them through these things, the precise details of each of these events of the end times. And he considered it important that they would have a precise understanding, which is so as I said, so different from people today who would, who would want anything but precision. In fact, many people today assume that accuracy is an impossibility when it comes to the end times. Or at least they would assume that 
it is somehow warped if people want to have an accurate understanding of these things. That kind of attitude, whether they realize it or not, is out of step with the Apostle Paul. Out of step with the Scripture as a whole because there's so much in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, that is dedicated to descriptions of these subjects. So Paul's saying, look, you know these things. You, you've been taught them. You know them well. You, you, you are fully and accurately and precisely and carefully uh, uh, exposed, if you will, to the times and the seasons. And, and particularly among all those events, among all that, Paul says you're particularly aware about the day of the Lord. How it comes like a thief in the night. That is one feature that they had been thoroughly and precisely instructed on. And what they had been told, among other things about this, is that it comes at a point when no one is expecting it. That's the whole idea about a thief in the night, you know. It comes when no one is expecting it. That that is the essence of that whole metaphor. Jesus himself uses the same metaphor to talk about this time of wrath and tribulation in Matthew 24. And he says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. It's coming, but the timing of it is unknown. It's like a thief in the night. It's going to happen when no one expects it. It's going to happen when no one, we might say, is looking out for it. What exactly is going to happen? Well, the day of the Lord, as Paul calls it, a phrase that's um, used throughout the passages of Scripture particularly in the Old Testament, referring to the end times. If you're a student of of the Old Testament, you would be very familiar with this. Over and over again, used by the prophets primarily to describe a day of judgment, a day of wrath, a day of reckoning, a day of recompense. It's not, by the way, a single day. It's not a single moment of time. It's a day in the sense of a season. Kind of like, you know, when we're talking to one another, we'll say, well, you know, back in the day, such and such, whatever. We're not talking about a a point in time. We're talking about a, a time season, one which might cover possibly years. And so that's the way that Paul is using, that's the way it's used throughout Scripture. This is a season or a time that covered really a number of years. And we can really get a sense, in fact, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos. You can get a sense of the way this word was understood if you just look at it in the prophets. And the best place to start is in the book of Amos because that's the first place that it's ever mentioned in the scripture. Amos wrote at about 750 BC. He was among the earliest of Israel's uh, prophets, and he was prophesying during the time of King Uzziah. He prophesied slightly before Isaiah prophesied, 
But he was right in the middle of this vast season of prosperity within Israel under King Uzziah when they were experiencing so many blessings, so much richness, so much wealth, so much success. And it was during this season of time that they began to think and began to hope that that this was spelling good things to come. This was spelling perhaps the fulfillment of all the the promises that God had given to Israel, the full restoration of their independence and their land and their prosperity that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And Amos, in Amos chapter 5, takes up this language of the day of the Lord, which he doesn't even really introduce it. it. It appears to be something that was a phrase just in the popular culture already. Maybe some unnamed and unknown prophet in some unrecorded prophecy had begun to use it and, and people understood it to be as something which referred to uh, a visitation of the Lord. Maybe even a time of vindication against God's enemies. Conquering all of his foes. And there were people in Amos' day who were looking forward, they thought, longing for this day, assuming that this conquering of Israel's foes would be the foes, the enemies of the nation of Israel. But Amos has a startling message for Israel that the day of the Lord would actually be a day when many within Israel will be swept away. This is what he says in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion, a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. It's not the day of the Lord, excuse me, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no bright in it. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if you really understood what the day of the Lord was about, you would not desire it at all. I mean, this is a day when when every action you take, every insignificant action you take will... uh, apparently uh, be cursed. I mean, leaning against a wall will bring about pain and suffering in your life. It's not a day of light. It's a day of darkness. It's something that no one would want to go through or participate in. From that time on, prophets would pick up that theme and continue to speak about the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2 puts it... uh, In similar kinds of terms, Isaiah 2, in verse 12, this would have been not long after Amos. And he says this in verse 12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, 
And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall, be, shall, shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. You can flip over to the book of Zephaniah, which would be in the Minor Prophets. Go over to Zephaniah and you read in that entire first chapter a description of the day of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. Those who bow down on roofs to the host of heaven. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord. Who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord's prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods will be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink the wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty men cries aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against fortified cities and against lofty battlements. I'll bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth.
This was the day of the Lord. And it was a day that over and over again, you read in the Old Testament prophets, was not something that anyone would want to be a part of. A day of wrath, a day of final judgment against all the nations. And there were preludes. You read in the Old Testament and you will read sometimes this language even used sometimes of current events in the life of the prophet when God would bring judgment against particularly wicked nations. But then he would always follow it up with some reference to a further day, a day not just against that nation, a day, for example, not just against Edom, but a day against all the nations, a day of the Lord. And God used in those days all kinds of means for his judgment and his destruction, famines and earthquakes, natural disasters, disease, all kinds of catastrophic events, even wars and chaos, bringing judgments of, uh, uh, of nations, judgment against nations. And even when you look into the book of Revelation and you read once again about this day and you look and you see these judgments, once again, what you see are these kind of natural disasters, these cataclysmic events that begin to unfold across the face of the earth and bring all of the nations under God's wrath. And not only that, as it begins to unfold with natural disasters, it soon turns into supernatural disasters as things begin to fall from heaven on whole groups of people, wiping them out. This was a picture of the day of the Lord. A day when God would overthrow his enemies, wipe out all who were in pride, all who had ignored his law, all who had failed to seek his face. But there was also something else involved with that day. Over in Jeremiah chapter 30. You read in the opening of that chapter about the day of the Lord. This is what he says. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. Behold, for behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Israel and Judah, says the Lord. I'll bring them back into the land that I gave to their fathers and they'll take possession of it. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we've heard a cry of panic, of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? When do I see every man with his hand on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great. There's none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob. Yet... He shall be saved out of it. It shall come, a pa- come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I'll raise up. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet ease, and none shall make him afraid, for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. 
I'll make a full end of the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. So here we find out a little bit more about this day. It's a day not only of wrath, but it's a day of restoration. Again, this is not just one single moment. It isn't just one split second in time. You begin to get a sense that this is something that the Lord is doing in a season of time. A day of wrath, but a day that God promises to spare Israel, to rescue her out of all this distress. You could go on reading, for example, Isaiah chapter 2, more about the blessings of the Lord that he'll bring about in that day when all the nations will rise and come to Jerusalem to worship at the feet of the Messiah. So not only is there a restoration of Israel, there's, there's a, a kind of worldwide work that takes place in the hearts of at least many outside of Israel. So all of, this is, all of this is wrapped up in this concept of the day of the Lord. Not a single day, but a whole season when God's going to accomplish a whole host of things. Bringing judgment to nations, judgment to ungodly within Israel, and yet including national restoration, restoration of, of Jews and, and renewal and salvation even for Gentiles. And the day of the Lord encompasses that whole period of time Beginning, you might say, with a time of tribulation that comes across the whole earth, extending to the time of judgment against all the nations, and incorporating the eventual renewal of Israel within it. And all of this, Paul is talking about when he talks about the day of the Lord. It's something that hasn't come yet. It hasn't arrived yet. It still awaits the future. And Paul wants them to know it's coming. It's going to come most certainly. And you may not know the timing of it. You may not know the calendar date. But you should be fully aware of these kinds of events. You ought to understand the nature of what is about to take place. You ought to be expecting it. It shouldn't come like a thief in the night to you. It ought to, it ought to be something that is, uh, you're constantly looking for. In fact, this um, whole idea of imminency is something that began in the Old Testament. As the prophets spoke about the day of the Lord, they too would talk about this idea of its imminent nature. Ezekiel 30, the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. Joel 1, the day of the Lord is coming, it is at hand. Obadiah 15, the day of the Lord is upon all nations, it is near. Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is at hand. Zechariah 14, the day of the Lord is coming. And so there's always been a sense that God's judgment could happen at any moment. At any moment. This, of course, is what we call the doctrine of imminency. The doctrine of nearness. Something that could take place at a split second. Now we saw last week, this is exactly the way that the scripture describes the rapture of the church as well. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul talks about how 
There's going to be a cry of command and a voice of the archangel and a blast of the trumpet and we'll all be snatched away. It's the word that uh, we translate caught up. We're caught up together with him. It's translated in, this, in the Latin for, as a rapturo, from which we get rapture. And so we, we learn as well that the rapture is going to be something that also takes place with this kind of imminency. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two, Paul talks about this. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we, we shall all be changed. So this is going to be an instantaneous thing, something that happens here with the last trumpet. And the rapture is, is under this rubric of imminency. The same kind of suddenness. Both of these events happening without any sign of warning, meaning that both of them happen at relatively the same time. Or we might say it this way, we understand from all of these uh, teachings that the church is raptured at the beginning of the day of the Lord. And it only makes sense. With everything you read about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, with everything that you read about what's coming, it would be really difficult to look forward to that day if it didn't also include some aspect of being spared from that day. Which is exactly what Paul says down in verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That you and I are not destined for this wrath. But we are destined to obtain salvation. Or as as he says back in chapter 1 even. That we wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a protection That's coming for the church, for those who are in Christ, for those who trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. There's a protection, and a protection which we understand to be the rapture of the church out of this day of wrath. But all of it happens, as Paul says here, suddenly. That's the main point. It's sudden, it's 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 unexpected. That's the metaphor. You'll notice in verse 3, he adds a picture of labor pains as well. Not because Paul is trying to muddy the waters. He doesn't intend us to take this idea of labor pains, pull it away from the context of everything else that he's saying, and build our entire doctrine of end times around it as if somehow labor pains, which can be somewhat calculated, uh, ought to lead us to try to calculate when these times will occur. Somehow we ought to be trying to read times and seasons and set clocks and declare days and write books about it or any of that other stuff. That is really non-contextual reading of the scripture here. Paul's purpose in using the labor pains is just to indicate how quickly and suddenly, while at the same time painfully, this will sneak upon you. It'll come on you at a time that you cannot 
calculate. Remember, this was the time there were no C-sections. And people, you know, they didn't say, well, I'm going to have my baby on this day or that day. There was, the whole point is, there was no way to know exactly when this was going to happen. It just comes upon you. That's his whole point here. That's his whole idea behind this metaphor of the thief. It is unexpected. No explicit signs or warning. You know, a thief doesn't give you warning. You don't get a text, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to drop by your house tonight between 12 and 3. Um, just want to take a few things for myself. Hope you don't mind. Now, Jesus says in Matthew 24, the master of the house, if he knew when the thief was coming, he would have been prepared. He doesn't expect him. Or, or in the reverse image that he gives there about waiting for the master to come home. For the servant, he says, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know. That's the key. All of this unexpected. You know, the FBI has a crime clock, I understand, on their website, reporting burglaries. Burglary apparently takes place every 14 seconds in this country. Statistically speaking, six of seven homes that are represented right here in this room will be broken into. The question is, if you knew tonight was your night for the thief to come, how would you respond? What would change about your afternoon plans? The casual lunch that you're planning, the afternoon nap, maybe propping up your feet in front of a baseball game or going out for a hike. How would it change if you knew the thief was coming? This is Paul's point. Just like uh, with the previous passage, you know, when he was talking to them about the rapture of the church, this was not just some academic discussion. This was pastoral. He wants to remind us of the urgency of being ready, of preparing ourselves every day for the coming of the Lord. That means certain things, as Paul will go on to say in this passage, and we'll get to next week. It means certain things for you and I. It means that we don't fill our minds with the thoughts of darkness. It means that we don't become intoxicated by what intoxicates the world with its drunkenness. It means that we don't leave ourselves defenseless against the night with no breastplate, with no helmet. It means that you're prepared for the coming of the day of the Lord. You know, at the top of that preparation list is being in Christ. It's being in Christ. You surrounded yourself with Christianity. You have Christian friends. You might have Christian family, a Christian spouse. But you're not ready. 
because you don't know the Lord. You might admire them. You might recognize their faith. But you, you don't know the Lord. Listen, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. The Lord has placed you where you are right now in the seat that you're in to hear this appeal. That you would repent. That you would lay aside your foolishness. That you would receive Christ Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And be ready for that day. We're going to close in a word of prayer. If you want to know, if you'd like to know how Christ can forgive your sins and transform your life and prepare you for his kingdom. I'd love to talk to you. I'll be down here, down front when we're done. I'd love for you to come and give me a moment with you and the word of God to look at those things. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, these are sobering things as they're intended to be. Over and over again, the prophets gave their appeal with so much passion vivid language to stir in our minds the reflection on the reality of these things. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't leave here numb, untouched and unmoved. That we would contemplate the day of the Lord as we contemplate the return of Christ and His appearing and our salvation to come. I pray that we would contemplate it as we're intended to, that the gospel would stir us to that end And that we would be those who are dressed and ready. Lord, we confess that the world around us, filled with darkness, constantly, constantly encroaches on our life and our minds. But we won't be children of darkness when we understand the will of the Lord. Help us to walk soberly in the day, waiting for His appearing. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.